Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. If I said all design is political, what would you think? In 2023, it's hard to refute this. As I've said on the show many, many times, design is ideology made artifact. And we can see examples of this everywhere at every scale from branding to buildings. Design is this articulation of how we live together, how we could live together, how we should live together. It's easy to say that design is political now, but 20 years ago, that was not the dominant narrative in architecture and design discourse. So it's striking and decidedly forward-looking that when Andres Yaki, my guest today, started his architecture studio in 2003, he called it the Office for Political Innovation. Andres was and is interested in this political dimension, a form of aesthetics of structures. Over the last 20 years, Yake and the studio have worked on a range of projects that tackles these issues in a range of mediums. They've produced books and exhibitions, large-scale performances in buildings and structures. In 2018, Andres co-curated Manifesto 12 in Palermo and was the curator of the 13th Shanghai Biennial. His latest book is Superpowers of Scale, a critique, expansion, and subversion of the Eames's famous film Powers of Ten. And just in August, he was appointed the new dean of Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. We begin this conversation with this new appointment and what he hopes to do in the role. Before talking about the relationship between politics and architecture, the role of performance in his work, and how he thinks through research and form. A transcript for this episode, as with all of our episodes, are available to Patreon supporters. Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you who help support the show each month. Supporters get bonus interviews, an exclusive monthly newsletter, and all sorts of other fun content. Students can support the show for just $3 a month, and then we offer additional tiers at $5 and $10 a month. Head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and get immediate access to all of this content. Thank you so much for listening. And here is my conversation with Andres Yaki. surprised and not surprised about your appointment uh, as the new dean of Columbia GSAB. Um, I was not surprised because this seems like something that, you know, you would you would do. But I was also really surprised because you always seem to have your hands in a lot of different things and, you know, are kind of working on all sorts of things. What uh, what attracted you to this position or why why was this interesting to you? Uh, yeah, that's a good question, uh, Jared. In, in a way, I think GSAB, uh, Columbia and the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation at Columbia is a place that it's been uh, for decades sensing what change would mean in the built mm. environment and beyond the built environment, I would say, also the unbuilt environment, which, of course, is, is, is um, difficult to find at this part. <laughs> Everything's built, right? But uh, what I like about GSAP and this position is that basically it's a privileged way from which uh, let's say, uh, change can be sensed and anticipated. And, uh, mm. and by privilege, I don't mean that it's unfair to others, but rather that there's a, a concentration of actually uh, incredibly 
uh, talented and, and inf well-informed people that are very generous in using the time and the efforts mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to do experiments and to, to be optimistic about uh, what can be achieved when you work together with others. And that produces very good feeling, the feeling that you can be connected to reality in many different ways, but also uh, contributing to basically shape the future of the world with certain values, with values that have to do with inclusivity, with, uh, with actually confronting many ways of segregation that are structured in our societies and also to think ecologically and to think of technology as something that could empower many actors in societies and ecosystems uh, and actually following justice. And all these things, if you put them together, uh, are actually very important. So to have or to be part of a platform uh, where this is already shared and you don't have to start from the beginning, but there's right. already many people with a long trajectory doing it is it's kind of amazing if you think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you've taught, you've taught at Columbia for 10 years now and, you know, are sort of in, embedded in this community. And when, when the New York Times did a little story on, on your appointment, you had a quote in there about you want to be one of those deans that helps grow the agendas of faculty and students rather than imposing your own. Um, and I kind of want to know if, if you could talk a little bit more about kind of how you see your role as dean, especially as somebody who's been a part of that community and that institution for so long, how are you sort of approaching this and what do you want to do with this position? I think a place like uh, Columbia GSAP, it's, uh, it could not be easily uh, explained as a family, for instance. Mm. It's rather an ecosystem. And I say this because it has... Uh, the capacity to incorporate diversity and to uh, celebrate difference and still be part of a shared dynamic, uh, right. nurture movement and, you know, and, 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 and getting organized to do things, but keeping the diversity uh, within. That's crucial. I think in the long run, uh, a very complex uh, and let's say diverse ecosystem is much more resilient. It's much more capable of responding to unexpected challenges or, or you know, and, the, and I think that's crucial. From my point of view, I don't want to be part of an organization that is unified, even if it's unified. I mean, it even works if it means that I have the one unifying it, you know. Like, <laughs> I'm much better equipped to be part of a, an ecosystem where there's many, many different voices and all of them feel that they can contribute and that there's possibility to trust on each other, even if we disagree in many things, but we can work together for shared values, even if, of course, we relate to them differently and from our different capacities. That's for me the challenge of being a dean now, nurturing the diversity rather than unifying, but still being capable of, or because of that, being much more capable of addressing questions that otherwise would be impossible. This is a big question. And I realize you're just a semester into this and still probably figuring this out. But how do you think about doing that? How do you think about sort of creating a, a nurturing environment like that for faculty and students? Because, you know, you see, you see some deans that 
they change the trajectory of the, you know, they come in with a mandate, with a, with goals. Uh, and how do you sort of balance that and think about, um, you know, sort of doing that in a, in an institution or in an ecosystem to use your word as big as Columbia GSEP is? You know, uh, we live in a moment in history that what to do is actually quite clear and it's very shared by those that are in an academic uh, mm. institution. You know, the what is not the question. We really are facing uh, fundamental transformations, environmental, right. climatic, societal. Uh, what the question is, is the how. Right. And, and for me, that's, and the how, it's complex. It's very complex. It's not something that you could reduce to a sentence or mm -hmm. to a paragraph. You know, you cannot do that. <laughs> right, right, right. And I was not asking for that, by, by the way. I realize that's a big question. So, no, but, but, but there's something that, that, that can, be, can be said about this, is that this is a work that is not defined at the beginning, but is defined in action. You know, I love this book, Science in Actions, by Bruno Latour, that uh, died recently, of course, as we know. But the, and when you look at change, uh, as it happens, it requires many, 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 many different things to be taken care of. Uh, and it's always collective. So I would say that uh, my, I see my role as a dean, as someone that can really take care of many, many things and also uh, make it possible that others and facilitate that others also can take care of each other and can contribute to a common uh, mission. But the mission is very clear. The mission is not other than the mission that the world is facing now, which is really how do we operate ecologically and how do we operate politically so that we can produce a, a, a society and we can, that can confront issues that are huge, which is the transition from a model of modernity based on destruction uh, and anthropocentrism to a model that is based on inclusivity, uh, that goes beyond the center and the control of power by a few, and that therefore can provide future that is uh, just based in the, the injustice and in the possibility for the diversity of the planet and our societies to be empowered. I mean, you've been you've been thinking about and working in the architecture space with these questions for a long time. I mean, you named your studio the Office for Political Innovation. <laughs> you know that you've been doing you know, that you started in twenty years ago. Now, do you have a sense of how this new position, how being the dean at Columbia, changes? Office for Political Innovation, or how office how, how how being involved in both how those start to influence each other or talk to each other. How how do you sort of think about you know these two organizations or these two ecosystems now? Yeah, I mean the the they're independent in many ways and they're also connected in many ways. Uh, they're functionally they're I would say totally independent. Mm -hmm. The Office of Political Innovation is operating through uh, the logics of an architectural office, even though it's it's an office that is understanding and, I mean, not understanding, acknowledging, I would say, uh, design as a political force and as a form of activism. Uh, I, I say acknowledging because architecture is always political. It's just right. what is how, how much you want to admit that <laughs> right. how aware you are, but the the question, but the, but the, 
but in a way it also needs to operate in the logics of the architectural firms and 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 uh, and I, I I'm very happy about that. So looking at the detail of how things happen, and then architecturally, and 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 really finding the way to not only do things but discuss the frame in which they operate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so in a way, GSAP is very different. GSAP is an organization that is composed by many different voices and that operates in uh, uh, in many different realms. The realm of uh, I would say academia degrees. Uh, also that is participated by many people that have uh, very different ideas and capacities, people that are experts on technology, right. people that are uh, theorists and, and historians and that really unpack ideas and, and evidences and, uh, and understand how they operate and explain how they operate. And, that, uh, and there's people that, that work with uh, design in a way that is uh, translated into pedagogies that can... Uh, in, bring together students and, and all these roles have their specificities that are very mm-hmm. different to an architectural office, of course. Uh, but I must say that there is something that, that they share, both of them, and that's why I can be part of the two of them, which is really the hope and the investment and the capacity uh, to be part of societies in a very mm-hmm. active way, in a way that we're not just accepting the knowledge that is received, but we have a very strong uh, commitment in both cases to, to be part of the changes and to, to move things on other directions. And, and for me, that's what, what makes it possible for me to be part of the, of the two organizations in a productive way. And I, when I look at the, at the, history of both organizations, which of course GSAP has a much longer history. I think there's milestones in which basically we can see that both contributed to shake things and and contribute with with ideas and propositions, uh, not just by identifying where the problems were, but actually developing ways to to move forward. I'm very happy to, I was very happy when I learned many years ago that that, IKEA Disobedience, her work in the Office for Political yeah. Innovation, was the first uh, performance ever included in the MoMA collection. And yeah. that meant a lot. I, I had to spend months discussing what it meant to do uh, an architectural performance. Uh, and and we, we also developed many ideas that then circulated and were useful for others uh, to rethink uh, architectural practices. And of course, that's tiny compared to the long trajectory of GSAP. Uh, exploring computation as a source of collective empowerment uh, to think ecologically. We have to think one of the first texts uh, on ecology was written by Kenneth Frampton while he was here, right. as, when he was already here as uh, teaching. And, that, and we, we start thinking how many, and now the work that David Benjamin, uh, to mention one, Mabel Wilson, uh, uh, I mean, I could go on and on, all of and alone, uh, yeah. doing which re- rethinking and redefining what we think of materiality as living, what we think of our histories, and what are the histories that we want to to know about and, the, and that we want to to base on our present on, and and that for me it's it's uh, exciting to see that even though the two organizations yeah. are very different in the way they operate, they share this capacity or they share this capacity. 
they keep sharing it uh, of of somehow being being uh, invested in in doing the work that it's needed to produce change in our fields. And that's exactly why I said I wasn't. I also wasn't surprised by that by your appointment because I I totally see that in in both both Columbia and in in your work. I'm really interested in this idea of. Uh, you know, this sort of argument that you're making of all architecture being political, which I think is something that, you know, more and more people are sort of waking up to and understanding. You were talking about that 20 years ago and you named the firm Office for Political Innovation and you were thinking about using the model of the architecture studio to engage in different formats and different problems. Can you talk a little bit about how that developed? When you opened the studio, was a lot of that DNA there from the beginning? Or is that something that sort of, you know, grew over time with the studio? No, it was there right at the beginning. I I spent time when I when I finished my training, I, I got a, a fellowship to 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 be in Dresden in Germany and well actually in Germany but I decided to go to Dresden to, to mm. Hellerau actually the Gartenstadt and uh, and I was fascinated by the Festspielhaus the the main theater the, or the center of this uh, small garden city uh, that had been constructed in the modernity during the early years of the of the 20th century and then was uh, became a Nazi center uh, mm. and then a Soviet uh, 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 building that was occupied by the Russian or the USSR army army in in Dresden, so and then it became a punk house, and uh, but the building was catering to all these different political programs. But the building was not the same. When you look mm. carefully at the evolution of the building, in order to move it from all these different ideologies to the next one, there was so much need of a transformation of the building in each stage. The building was totally different. They transformed right. it, by painting it, by changing it. But I was looking at that, and then I uh, immediately came to my mind: like, okay, this is the center of architecture. This is really what uh, architecture is about. Architecture is about politics. But the way politics happen to architecture is for me very meaningful, because there's a specific forms by which architecture performs politically. Forms of politics that have to do with dimensions with materials, with how long it takes to build something, with how it is built and how the labor invested in it is uh, convened. Uh, what is the way that basically societal situations are becoming more likely by architectural settings than others? And, and those questions for me are making politics very tangible and very concrete. And I love that concreteness that architecture brings to politics. It's not the spoken word, uh, but it's actually the societal settings that are produced. And that's what I love and about architecture, that you can really change things by changing the dimension of a door or by deciding to put an elevator and not a staircase. Uh, and those tiny uh, or big decisions they are doing politics. And that's for me what is making it very exciting. It's true that when I started to say these things in the 2000s, something like that, uh, and, and and telling that my office would be political and that it's... Yeah. <laughs> so many people that are like, that's that doesn't make sense. Architecture is really... It has nothing to do with, with politics. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, I progressively convinced others that it, it could be... And many people ended up in the same... Kind of with the same conclusion, so it was 
really fun to see how I was progressively gaining allies and allies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we've we've all caught up to you. <laughs> uh, I've uh, I, I'm wondering if you could talk. I mean, I always the the sort of a definition of design that I like to use a lot is that design is ideology made artifact, which is essentially what you're saying, you know, about architecture. It's the, this sort of material concreteness of, you know, political systems. And what's always fascinated me about your work is this really seamless blend between the theory and the practice, between the researching and the building. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how you think about that as somebody who is designing buildings that are then built in the world, who is also producing performances and books and you're researching and you're, you're an academic. How do these all fit together for you? Or how do you sort of think about the, the interplay between idea and form in, in the space of the architecture office? Yeah, that's, that's something that, uh, you know, it took me a long time to, to be confident about that, you know, because... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why I'm asking, because it's like it comes up in my work all the time. Yeah, in a way, I had a little bit of a, I think, similar to you, uh, a little bit of a, a, a moment in which I, I said, okay, uh, let's do things my own way, because <laughs> if I keep doing things like uh, an architect is supposed to to do them, uh, I everything would be incredibly well. <laughs> No yeah, one... that sounds familiar. Yeah, so so similarly to to, to you, I started to to basically uh, ask questions and questions that were not easy to respond and and or even to 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 build the questions. So I I started to be uh, basically much more engaged with research progressively, mm. mm-hmm. and there were experiments that I could do very easily, like very fast. And that could allow me to know much more about these questions and, and build those questions better. And there were things that I could do with architectural tools. Uh, so when I started doing performances, it, it was because it was so easy to do them. And they were very effective in creating architectural situations that would very uh, directly address questions. So for instance, the Barcelona Pavilion. I was very excited to be there at one point at the Barcelona Pavilion and then I discovered that uh, uh, because it was very annoying to me to see all this minimalism and everyone's so in love with it without questioning it. But then there was a moment in which I saw that someone opened a tiny part of the floor and there was a staircase that would lead to this basement. Mm. And the basement was amazing. It had everything that I would expect to see in the pavilion and that was missing, like the, the place where the employees had lunch or... Uh. The furniture that they used for the events, where was it kept? There, down in the basement. So the basement became the space that I needed to, for myself to make sense of that building. So I decided to do this installation that was very, as I said, came very natural. Like, okay, just put, let's put all this up here in the pavilion. And then, we, and then Misa starts being interesting. We see that there's so much ecological design here. They need to, someone needs to make sure that, there, that there's not algae in the water. And that someone is a, it's a machine. And there's chlorine that is, you know, like it's right, right. everything starts being, uh, let's say, not in the terrain of, uh, let's say, a, a critical admiration. Uh, but it starts to be kind of a discussion among intelligent beings, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and that's what, that's kind of the journey that I did, but that was very easy because in a way I was using 
simple architectural uh, tools, often tools that we don't uh, think of, like creating yeah. a situation, asking people to do something, uh, moving furniture from one all things from one row to the other one. And that was very, very helpful because I could do things that were needed for me to, to be done in architecture if I wanted to be part of that right. in a simple way with tools that were available for me and for the people I work with. And from there to buildings, it was very easy. So we kept doing performances, research, activism, buildings. And for me, everything's the same. I look at the building as a performance and as a site for activism. And, and that's right. I keep doing it and so far it's working. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that you sort of had this similar realization that I sort of had as a, as a graphic designer. Um, and I had this sort of moment where it was like, if this is what graphic design is, I'm not sure I want to be a graphic designer and, and I could have left it and gone and done something else. Or it's like, go deeper into it and let me be critical. Let me start writing. Let me do these sort of other things. Um, and, and in a weird way, those other things brought me back to design and back to the, the sort of more traditional practices that we think of as design. And, and those are interesting to me because there is now a criticality in them. And I'm wondering if you had something similar where when you started doing performances, when you started doing research, when you were writing texts, were those, did you see those as a way back into architecture in the traditional sense of like I'm designing buildings or can you talk just a little bit about kind of were those projects all on their own and it just happened that those could be architectural in this new way does that make sense do you know what I mean yeah absolutely I mean for me basically the what architecture is is a very it's very rich so yeah. architecture is really uh, about pipes <laughs> when you look carefully about pipes, you know, pipes is really how water moves from right. body to the environment and what is in between, right? Uh, architecture is really about uh, bringing different actors together and mediating uh, and regulating their relationships. So the relationship of flies or mosquitoes mm -hmm. uh, with humans, it's regulated through architectural arrangements. And, uh, or for instance, the way... Um, the way different uh, constituencies articulate uh, their access to common resources. And uh, so I'm mentioning these things because architecture is not, for me at least, and when I look at architects that have been important uh, uh, for me or architectural facts that have been important and that are important, uh, I would describe them in these terms. And what is the technology that, that produces that? Uh, it's very diverse. Uh, in some moments, it's walls. In some moments, it's furniture. Sometimes it's mm. uh, wires. Sometimes it's just someone speaking and telling people what are their options. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just the smell. Sometimes it's uh, temperature. And all these things are, you can find them in every single architecture. So you go to the architecture of a school. It has walls, but also it has people saying things. It has Right. Machinery right. to control smell and air flows. And so you can decide which ones of these things in the palette you, you use in each situation. But you're always doing architecture. And you're doing architecture each time with part of the palette. But this richness allows you to operate in many different situations 
and to adapt what you do and what the people you work with do uh, to, uh, to, to respond to the kind of uniqueness and the particularities of, of a given situation. Yeah. This may be many words, but what I'm trying to say is something very simple. Architecture is very rich. It's a culture of material and performative mediation. And what you do with that is something that is really dictated by the moment you live in and by the circumstances that you have to respond to. But somehow what is beautiful is to think that that is something that you could experiment with. And for me, that meant that I felt very, very comfortable doing a performance because fundamentally it's not different to do a building. I'm wondering if you could talk more about sort of the the formal enactment of research. I'm, and as somebody like yourself who works across all of these forms, you're designing buildings, you are producing books, you are staging performances, you're teaching classes. All of those are, are different forms or different mediums. Do you start projects sort of knowing this is going to be a book, this is going to be a performance? Or how does that sort of start to crystallize for you or, or, or maybe in the process itself, when do you realize, oh, this is a book or, oh, this is a, this is going into a building. There's no clear kind of boundary of where projects start and end for me. Mm. Uh, I, uh, for instance, often start with the research on something that I think is going to be, uh, um, ending as a book. And then it, Somehow someone comes and asks for a design for a building and then we right. we turn that into a, a building. And then years later, uh, we end up, uh, I don't know, asked to do something in a biennial and, and we decided there's something exciting that we didn't fully develop of that research and we end up doing that. But what is crucial for me, it's that that's how architecture unfolds now for me. Uh, right. So when, when we, in this, uh, in the Venice Biennial, where we presented this project on Berlusconi, uh, the mm -hmm. reason why I was fascinated by Berlusconi is that he, uh, invented an architecture that was multimedia, I would say that was on the one hand happening in buildings on the other in the landscaping that was surrounding these buildings, but also in their interior designs, but then also in the market mm -hmm. place that or the strategy to market all these things and also in the media and the TV shows that he started to prepare and to, to as a way to control the population who lived in those buildings. So you would be in your living room, you would switch on your TV and everything was controlled by Berlusconi. What you would see on the TV, the sofa where you were right. sitting, uh, who you were with, the plants that you would see through the window. For me, what is exciting about architecture, you can either enter, if you want to intervene that reality, you can either do it through the TV, through the garden, through the interior design, or through the building. But the result would be that you're basically intervening that uh, multimedia realm. And that's what allows to kind of have an architecture that approach that is so heterogeneous. We were talking about this a little bit before we hit record in the... Um... Oliver Wainwright in The Guardian did a review of your new building, the Regis going in there. He, he mentions that you always work on one project at a time, uh, and that, is, that has sort of been your process. And so I'm interested in that and then what you just said about maybe you're working on one thing and then somebody comes to you with a project and you're like, oh, a lot of this research sort of goes to that. How do you, um, how do you 
kind of balance or hold intention research that you don't know if it's going to go anywhere, ideas that you have, things you are thinking about that maybe don't have a form with sort of the pressing demands of a client or, you know, uh, you know, working in an institution. Um, how, how do you sort of think about that? Is it, you know, how do you, how do you sort of say like, here are just questions we want to think about. We don't know if this is going to go anywhere yet with here are things that we actually do know are going somewhere. Uh, in a way, the research is sort of a, a technique to build a way of seeing, mm. uh, literally. Like, basically, we start uh, digging into something, mining documents, reading them. Uh, and at one point, we are obsessed with that. And so when it comes to, to you know, someone calling us to, you want to do this? We go to, for instance see a site and we immediately are seeing what we can see through the lenses of the research mm. that happens all the time uh and uh when we did the Bartholomew pavilion uh installation looking at the basement uh then immediately when we had to do building we were much more interested in the pipes than in the right. supposedly beautiful things you know and then uh, right, right. we have the projects like the moma ps1 project that is just about pipes Right. And that's the way it works for us. It's interesting to me that you're, you know, that all of this is a type of architecture. You have this sort of expanded view of what architecture is and can be in your new role as dean. Is being dean, is leading an institution also a type of architecture? Do you see that as a sort of design project in some way? Uh, yeah. I mean, we talk a little normally about architecture, and I wonder if it's better to talk of architecturing mm, you know because in yeah. a way anything can be architectured uh and i think that's kind of the key i, I think architecture is it's really a way to uh deal with the fact that that our lives or, or whoever's whatever lives are the result of the entanglement of some things with others yeah for me, the architecturing is in the articulation of the heterogeneity, I would say, of uh, how things that are different get to expand into each other, infiltrate each other, negotiate, and kind of build a coexistence together, and not necessarily even being aware that they're doing that, or not being aware of the presence of the others, right? And that's what, for me, is the architecturing, this kind of compositional uh effort of articulating uh, something that is collective uh, out of heterogeneous participations. It's an interesting sort of lead into this other theme that I noticed in a lot of your work is this idea of scales and, and playing with scale. And I think, you know, you, you can talk about your work in a very traditional way of talking about scale, sort of, um, you know, the size of something, you know, the sort of smaller projects to the, the larger um, you know, kind of infrastructural exhibition building type projects. Um, but then, you know, you're also doing projects like Superpowers of Scale, which is, you know, this book and performance and sort of multimedia piece. I'm wondering why scale is so interesting to you and how you think about scale in your work. Yeah, I think scale is where politics happen now. Mm. Uh, when we look at individual, I mean, I don't think individuality exists to start with. 
Like who is an individual? You know, what's the individual? Right. Uh, we look at our bodies. We're not individuals. Only you know, in our skin, on our mouth, there's already kind of a huge collective of bacteria. <laughs> right, right. Like it's there's no such a thing. We're ecosystems, and we only kind of we don't even know what it means to to think or to sense. Uh, because that's also something that we do collectively, right? So it's right. Uh, so I, I think that there's something of a, a, a larger discussion needed about consciousness and why why the consciousness uh, looks very much like a consciousness of individuality, whereas mm. we basically function exist as as participations in uh, in collectiveness, and that is that is where the scale plays such an important role because I believe that politics happen as things scale up and scale down. And it, just to give an example, the politics of materiality cannot be seen in a single uh, take. Like, for instance, you, you I, I have a, a notebook with me now. Uh, the paper, right. it's the tree, right? And the forest and the right. industry right. and the activism. Uh, uh, on ecology, it's part of the of the making of the book of the notebook, and you know, and uh, and the logistics and the, but also the tiny molecules and 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 what is the waste that is produced to the or the energy that is required to 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 make those molecules uh, produce white paper and not colored paper, you know, and all these uh, uh, those ways of transitioning from the scale of the molecule. To the forest, it's where the important mm-hmm. questions, political questions, or activisms, or disputes uh, that are shaping the times we live uh, are allocated. So, for me, when when we talk about scale, we're talking about the the, the habitat of politics, or mm-hmm. how politics unfold, or how we we operate politically, to be more accurate. And that is, uh, for me, what is important. When you look at the building, and that's why for architecture is the question, I, I, I'm so insistent in discussing uh, uh, scales politically. Right. Because when, when you look at the building, you might think that it's just a pretty building or an ugly building or whatever. Or, right. or, or whatever. But it's when you look at how it operates across scales, when you look how it operates politically, and then the discussion is not, if it's beautiful or not beautiful, the discussion is how it operates as a mean for segregation, or it's contribute, or it's contributing to that, or mm-hmm. you know, and that's mm-hmm. what it's important. How, how do you how do you start to sort of bring these ideas into architecture and design education? And, and I'm not asking you to make predictions here, but I think as you know, as you look towards the future, and as you sort of look at the work you've been doing, and as you sort of think about where you want you know, sort of the ideas in, in Colombia to go, how do these become embedded in how we teach the next generation of designers as opposed to something that historically is seen as like ancillary or alternative practices or experimental practices? How does that become the core or can that become the core? Uh, I think that this is the core. We Either we want or not, you know, it's... <laughs> Right, right. What we do because of the times that we live in, right? Uh, and the question for me is uh, whether we want to operate transcalarly uh, through uh, a false impression of non-discontinuity, and I will explain, 
or whether we are we want to acknowledge that transitioning across scales is problematic, it's difficult, it's, mm. it requires politics, mm-hmm. it's not automatic. I will give you an example. Uh, you might just take your phone and and Google, you know, using Google Earth or Maps, identify a location, and then you start moving it down and uh, it's and zooming out, it becomes a country and then it becomes a continent and it becomes right. the world, right? Right. Uh, and you can zoom in and you can get to the uh, to the to a beach and and you end up looking at the sun, right? To a certain extent, it depends of the definition. Uh, uh, but you know, as you move, you're feeling that it's Google Earth, Google Maps makes you think that there's something as a non-discontinuous you know, like something mm-hmm. that allows you to, to basically easily, automatically move from one scale to the other. That's modernity. That's really the idea that the hand handle, you know, or something at the scale of industrial design, it's totally consistently coherent, right. uh, connected ideologically, politically with the scale of the planet. And what I think that is a fundamental difference uh, it's that now we know that to move from the scale of a door to the scale of a building, there's there's so many arenas right. that that are full of conflict of you know like it's but our life or our world is constructed this advanced capitalist <laughs> modern world yeah. that we're, yeah. we're seeing sinking and cracking everywhere. Uh, it's basically meant to produce that fantasy that transitioning across scales is is it, it doesn't have a cost uh, and it's undisputed. Mm. I did this work, uh, superpowers of ten, because it was a, a reenactment of this film uh, by the Emises. Powers yep. of my my reading and and as as we research more and more, uh, and we saw the the. The, the participation of Jacob Bronowski, for instance, the scientist, the British scientist that was de- that developed actually the, the maths that were needed to calculate the trajectories of bombs during World mm. War II in the UK. Uh, and he used the same logics uh, of that he developed in, in calculating these bombs or rockets, rockets trajectories uh, to design this film and to calculate the, the transitions uh, uh, that is an evidence of, and among many, many others, that, that this was really like a, a, a Cold War weapon, a weapon that was sent to control population and societies and to really make them think that from the scale of their picnic, there was a possibility of moving to the universe and that right. that was all coherent, that they were the happy, happy suburban uh, universe. Uh, but, but it's not. When you look right. in detail, all that happy suburban universe was not that happy. There were so many complex conflicts in the grass already, and there was there's so many people that would die because of the herbicides that were used there. Right. There were many gender conflicts in that, <laughs> probably if not in that uh, couple, in others, and and there was you know even genes uh, and the association of genes with with uh, the performance of gender was already under dispute. And of course, when we go to the to the outer space, that was the location of the satellites and the right. and, and all those uh, uh, 
the, all those conflicts is really what is important of those times of 1968 when the film was first released. And, and that was what was really moving people to protest around the world. And, and I think that the movie was like a, a little bit of a volume for people to, to be mm. pacified uh, and kind of put, it, put to sleep to a certain extent. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I love that project of yours, The Superpowers of Scale. I haven't seen the performance part, but the book is, is a book that I've spent a lot of time with. Um, and, and I just, I'm sort of really interested in the way that you are thinking about that. And it, to begin to wrap up this conversation, I'm curious sort of what's on your mind now? You know, I realize you're sort of in this new position. There's like, you probably have like a lot of, you know, just administration that you're doing, but what are the, what are the topics and areas of research that you, that's really exciting you and sort of um, top of mind for you right now? I think that we have uh, definitely architecture and planning, like all the uh, disciplines of the built environment are, are to be very direct, we have a responsibility to repair, for reparation, mm. uh, for reconstruction, and for intervention, and to also be capable of imagining uh, and imagining new multiverses. And, and, and that is because basically there's a number of fundamental, let's say, paradigms that have basically been confronted. The paradigm, of course, of racism and segregation. It's something that is cracking everywhere and happily there's uh, a collective effort to confront that and to, to repair, to adapt to different situations, to imagine new for different scenarios, non-segregative. We are definitely getting into a post-anthropocentric era where we acknowledge that our life is entangled with those of other beings. And that's crucial to understand how we are immersed in this climate and biodiversity crisis. And it's the way also to, to seriously imagine alternatives to it. And, right. and I think this, this is really going to, uh, to, that means for the disciplines of the built environment, not catering to humans alone, but catering, catering to compositions mm-hmm. of life that we could call more than human. And I think that we're really in a moment where, where the, the, the kind of legacy of colonialism and the practices of, of coloniality around the world are, again, like, like sinking and cracking. And we see uh, that there's an appetite and a sensitivity and the aesthetics and the discourse for a new world or for many, many new worlds to emerge in those cracks. And 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 I think that the notion of technology uh, is is with that being totally transformed, and we no longer believe that technology operates in a progressive linear way, but it's actually something yeah. that is an arena aside for for disputes. And we see that now with AI, as we've seen it before with online interaction, as we said with bio. Mm-hmm. Uh, bio uh, uh, industries and bioengineering, as we said with geoengineering. And I think that if you put together all these different layers, they're talking of the end of a, of a time of extraction and the beginning of a, something very different, which mm. many people are referring to, to a, a, a time for mutual care. Uh, and right. however we call it, there's definitely a change of paradigm. 
Right. And I think that the question for a school of architecture, planning, preservation, it's what do we do to make sure that our disciplines take advantage of their incredibly agency in all mm -hmm. the processes? Uh, and I think that's what Dean needs to do that now, like really make sure that a school like GSAP that is uh, seen in its DNA to be an engine for change, for necessary and engaged uh, change, to anticipate and to, to really accelerate the process of all these very needed transformations to be empowered by the fields and the disciplines of the built environment. I, I love that. I think that I think that's such a nice way to wrap up this conversation. And so I'm going to ask you the question that I use to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now. Oh wow! I'm I'm reading right now, right right now, Elizabeth Povinelli, uh, huh. a small book of the contributions or a, a, a big big, uh, really in 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 uh, uh, let's say ambition book with all the text that she's written in the last years uh, for and it's incredibly beautiful i'm i'm really enjoying it very much andres thank you so much for doing this i am a fan of your work congratulations on the new position thanks for being on the podcast thank you so much jared it's been a real pleasure this episode was recorded on january 27th 2023 our theme music is by andy borgasani we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can support the show on patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts at scratching the surface.fm thanks for listening